Hello, welcome to the London Fortean Society at Conway Hall. Um, who here's not been to a London Fortean's thing before? Oh, quite a few. Hey, welcome. Good. Uh, who here doesn't know what the heck we mean by Fortean? Okay, it's an almost equal amount. These must be the magical buffs. Um, so Fortean comes from an American writer called Charles Fort, who sort of wrote between the late 19th and early 20th century. He, um, he lived in London for a little while, just up the road from here, um, on Marchmont Street. Um, his ideas were that faith cannot explain the strange things that happen within nature, and science cannot explain the strange things that happen within nature. So maybe we should just look at, look at what happens and come up with our own ideas, in a nutshell, and wrote four quite wonderful books based on that. Um, the eight, his followers coined the name Fortean, which was the name of the first Fortean Society, and then the magazine, The Fortean Times, which covers strange phenomena. And about nine years ago, me and four other, three other people were drunk in a pub, and we decided to start a Fortean Society in London, because Edinburgh already had one. Um, and here we are. We base, uh, how, we, how we practice being Fortean is we put on speakers we think are good, with interesting stuff to stay, say, and then you can make your own mind up. Uh, talks are generally 45 minutes to an hour. We take a break. And then we have uh, considered questions, a question and answer session, and I'll talk a bit about more of that later. So um, that's the basics. Uh, really happy to welcome Gustav Kuhn tonight, speaking on um, the experience in the impossible, why magic works. Gustav is a reader in psychology at Goldsmith University, a member of, hang on, hang on. Had it already. He's the chair of the Recruitment and Outreach and Marketing Committee. That's a bit boring. Uh, the president of the Science of Magic Association, a member of the Experimental Psychology Society. If that was the Experimental Society of Psychology, you could be ESP. <laughs> you missed out on one there. And is currently a member of the Magic Circle. Um, do you please welcome on uh, Experiencing the Impossible, Gustav Kuhn. Dr. Gustav Kuhn. I'm now not going to stop lying. I was lying a lot during this performance. Um, I'm changing now. I've, I've often thought about what's the best way of combining magic and psychology, and I think it's probably best for me to really just separate. That was the performance bit. None of that was real, okay? Um, that was lies. Um, I'm now turning to being a scientist and telling you the truth. I started magic when I was about, I got into magic when I was about 13 years old and I spent most of my childhood really dedicated to this world of magic. And as a magician I was always really interested in psychological principles that magicians use to manipulate people's minds and it was really my keen interest in magic that led me then to study psychology. Um, I grew up in Switzerland, I then moved to England uh, tried a career as a professional magician, failed, and um, became an academic. Uh, and now I am the director of the Magic Lab, where we use lots of different tools, we study lots of different psychological principles to learn more about the human mind. Now, magic is really one of the oldest forms of entertainment, and I think it deals with some of the most fundamental psychological and philosophical questions. It deals with consciousness, it deals with beliefs, it deals with free will. And yet, 
Unless most, unlike most other art forms, it's received far less academic attention or attention generally from people outside the field. And for the last 15 years or more, I've been trying to bridge this gap between magic and science because I believe there's lots of really interesting questions that magic can actually answer. So what I'd like to do in this talk is just give you a very brief overview of some of this research. I would like to explain how, and not, I'm not going to give away any of the secrets as to how any of these tricks are done, because I love magic and I want to keep that wonder that magic elicits. But hopefully you'll appreciate that actually once we start to learn about how the human brain works, we realize that actually the kind of like magical illusions that the brain plays on us are as fascinating as the magic itself. So what is magic? Magicians have written thousands of books on magic, but most of these books simply focus on how you actually fool people. And, all the, and very few of them actually focus on the question of what magic actually is. I think of magic as a conflict between the things you believe you've experienced and the things you believe to be possible. So if you think back at this performance here, you all know that lemons can't appear out of nothing. Yet, of course, that's just what you've experienced. And so, from a psychological perspective, magic creates an interesting psychological conflict between the things you believe to be possible and the things that you've just experienced. And indeed, about 10 years ago, we ran an fMRI study. fMRI is a technique that allows us to scan people's brain and measure people's brain activation whilst they're doing different types of tasks. And uh, this is a study in which we got people to simply watch magic tricks, and we were interested in the parts of the brain that will be particularly activated whilst they're experiencing these types of magic tricks. And the results were really rather remarkable in that we got two main activations. We got an activation in an area known as the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is this area here, and another area which is known as the anterior cingulate cortex. Now what's very interesting about these areas is that these are also areas that are generally involved when we experience cognitive conflict. So there's lots of times where you're in conflict. So for example, now you want to pay attention to me, and yet the door is opening up there, that's capturing your attention, so somehow you need to inhibit all of these other distractors. And indeed, if you actually get these kinds of distractors, so if you use tasks where you have to inhibit these types of distractors, that leads to similar kind of activation, which adds weight to this idea that magic is all about conflict. So we can think of magic as this cognitive conflict between the things that you're experiencing and the things that you believe to be possible. So how then can we create this cognitive conflict? Well, of course, magicians don't have supernatural powers, or I'm not aware of any of them who do, and actually tricks are often a lot more effective than relying on sort of like divine intervention. And so in the absence of supernatural powers, how can we create these magical illusions? Well, of course, to do so, magicians, they exploit lots of, lots of um, limitations and perceptual or cognitive illusions. And at the key of magic 
relies this massive attribution illusion in that what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to attribute what you've seen to my magical skills. So for example, as I'm making a little ball disappear here, I'm hoping that you attribute the disappearance of the ball to my magical skills rather than any psychological limitations. Now, luckily for the magician, there's lots of these types of illusions that can be, can be exploited to get you to experience things that are impossible. And that is because our brain is constantly fooled into making these illusory attributions. Have a look at these two circles. Um, what happens here? You've got a blue circle moving across, pushing the red circle to the other side. Is that you're getting that? Yeah, it's a pretty basic illusion. Let me show you that again. Now, this is known as perceptual causality. And our brains are hardwired to perceive the world in terms of causality. And even though you know that these dots aren't causally related, they are simply dots on a screen, you can't fail to perceive one dot as causing, some, uh, causing something to happen to the other. Now, we've known about this for many years, and this is one of the most beautiful studies um, that was carried out by Hyder and Simmel, where they showed these very early cartoons to a bunch of kids. And I'm just going to let you play this and have a look at this. And have a think about what is happening, what are you seeing? So... Um, <laughs> So when you go home, so, so what's happening here? How would you describe this? How would you describe this? Bullying. Yeah. But you know these are just triangles. These are just moving objects. They've got no intention. They've got no personality. And yet, of course, as we're seeing these very simple figures, it's very hard for us to not attribute some higher cause to what we are seeing. And indeed, studies on, on, on infants show that this happens, this develops at a very early age. And so our, our brain is constantly fooled in these illusory causation. Of course, every time you see Kermit open his mouth and you hear someone talk, you think it's Kermit the Frog talking. Kermit's a puppet. He can't talk. And yet, we are falsely attributing some form of causality to what you are seeing. And so if you think of magic, then magic works because people falsely attribute magical powers to the cause of the effect. And that's really at the center of most magic tricks. So how do we do it? <clears throat> well, the key that underlies Magic relies on misdirection, and misdirection is a concept that's really central to magic, but it's also a concept that's very poorly understood by both magicians and the public. Because when you typically think about misdirection, people usually think of misdirection as simply being about distracting your attention. So I might drop something to capture your attention, like I did in that, in, in, in that pickpocket routine. But there's a lot more to misdirection than simply distracting your attention. Because by distracting your attention, I'm also distracting you from the actual magic. And so magic only works if I can misdirect you without you noticing 
that you're being misdirected, or at least without noticing your own limitations. Now, I've studied this for many, many years, and it made me a very proud dad when my son Joe demonstrated a magic trick to me which encapsulates everything about misdirection. So what you're going to see here is very, very quiet, so you're going to have to listen very carefully. I hope it's going to play, uh, I hope it's going to be loud enough. If it's not quite loud enough, I will sync what he's actually saying. Um, but this is Joe, this is a few years ago, this is about three years ago. He's very pleased that I'm showing this in kind of like a lot of my talks. And um, he's going to show you a magic trick and just watch the magic trick and follow him very closely, okay? I'm going to do a magic trick. Close your eyes. <laughs> Open your eyes. <laughs> Close your eyes. Open your eyes. Ta da! <laughs> now, of course. <laughs> um. Now, of course, if you I didn't, did anybody close your eyes? <laughs> you cheapskates, I can't believe you didn't follow his instructions. Um, now, if you would have followed his instructions, you would have not seen how his pen appeared. Like, it would have been magic. But is it magic? Well, it's magical, of course. But it doesn't create this cognitive conflict, because, of course, we all know why we didn't see the, 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 the pen appear. And so... Misdirection only works because it exploits very surprising limitations in human cognition. And again, luckily for the magician, there's lots of these surprising limitations. So as I'm looking around here, I feel like I'm aware of most of the things that are going on around me. And yet, as we'll learn later on in this lecture, in actual fact, you're far less aware of your environment than most of us think. Even the things that you do see, and you trust by seeing them with your eyes, we can't actually really trust the things that we see with our eyes because the way that we perceive our world is very much influenced by our beliefs about the world. Even our memories, so we trust our memories, and yet what you're actually remembering is a reconstruction of what you've actually believed to have experienced rather than a true representation of your experience itself. And even our sense of free will, so the sensation that you have when an idea pops in your mind or you carry out a certain action, as we're learning more about how the brain works, we've also come to realize that this sense of free will may indeed be an illusion. And so as magicians, we've then got loads of different psychological tools that we can start to exploit to create this cognitive conflict. Let's start with the first one, namely how much you actually see. And what I would like to do now is really explore some of these gaps in our conscious experience. So how many of you would like to learn to make a rabbit disappear? Yeah? Should we do it? You ready? Okay, so you've all got a piece of paper. Um, piece of paper here. Maybe if we can just have a little bit of light. Um, so, what I would like you to do is I will remove my glasses first, just to do so. We're going to make this rabbit in the, in the top hat disappear. <coughs> Hold out the piece of paper, close one eye, close the left eye, um, cover it. Look at the cross on the piece of paper. Keep your eye on that cross 
and then gradually bring the piece of paper closer to you and at some point, if you don't move your eyes, that rabbit disappears. Mine is gone. It's gone. It's completely gone. If I move my eyes, it comes back. If I look back at the dot, it goes. Yeah, you're getting that illusion? Um, you'll get that illusion. How many of you are really disappointed because you wanted to make a real rabbit disappear? Most of you. Okay, so, now I know this is not the most amazing trick, but as I promised before, sometimes the explanation is even more magical. So let's have a look at why this illusion works. To, to do so, we need to have a quick look at how perception works and how the eye works. So I've got a diagram of the human eye. So we've got an object out here in the world. The object is projected through, the, through this lens here onto the back of our eyes, which is known as the retina. And we've got thousands of little photoreceptors that encode all of the information and send it back through the optic nerve to different parts of the visual cortex. The eyes are one of the most amazing organs, but can any of you spot a little design flaw? What's the design flaw? Where the optic nerve yeah, this optic nerve here is a really bad design because what it means is that since all of the neurons, these are all the cables that have to leave the eye, they have to leave the eye at some point, they have to leave the eye here, which means you can't actually have any photoreceptors here. So any information that is projected onto this blind spot simply disappears. So the reason why this rabbit disappears is that if you get this at the right location, so you get it at the right distance, that rabbit projects onto the blind spot and it disappears. Because that's cool. But here comes the really, truly amazing bit. How many of you noticed this blind spot? We don't. Even if you close one eye and you look around, you just don't see the blind spot. I've demonstrated that it's here. I've shown you the anatomy to explain why it's there, and yet we don't notice it. Now, the blind spots, well, it's a pretty rubbish technique to, for magicians. Because, of course, if I want to make this lemon disappear, I'll go to you, hey, look here, and I go, oh. <laughs> That is a rubbish magic trick, okay? But, luckily for the magician, that is only one of many of these limitations. The biggest limitations really refers to the, relates to the amount that we perceive. As I'm looking around this world, I feel like I'm aware of most of the details that are going on around me. And then this is beautifully captured by this picture that I took from an introduction book on vision, where I don't know why this person got to take a naked lady. Um, so you got the picture here. It's always really embarrassing when I do this for kids. Um, but um, yeah, you got, the, you got the picture here. This is captured by the eye. And then all of her beautiful details are represented back in the visual cortex. Now that's the experience that we have of vision. But that is a massive illusion. And to understand this, we need to understand how the, how the visual system works. And you've got the blind spot here, but that's only one of the limitations. We often think of the eye as a, like a camera, and that makes a lot of sense, because of course with the camera as well, you've got a lens and you've got something that's capturing all of the visual information, which kind of like used to be film, now some form of pixel, uh, some form 
of receptors. But of course, when you're taking a picture with your 8 or 12 megapixel camera, you've got the same resolution in the whole, uh, whole image. Like you've got the same resolution on the edges as you do it in the middle. The eyes are very different, because with the eyes, we only have a high resolution. It's a very small area here, which is known as the fovea. And uh, again, I'm going to get into a lot of exercise. If you close one eye and you stretch out the thumb and look at that thumb, that thumb projects onto the fovea. It's really, really small. Okay? Now, in the fovea, we've got these really high density of receptors. And what this means is that we get high acuity. Everything out in the periphery is completely blurred because we've got barely any photoreceptors out there. And so what this really means is that although we experience the world in full detail, the actual information that the brain receives is really much more like this. We only have high acuity information from the center and then everything out in the periphery is blurred. Do you notice this? No, we don't. I mean, this is the thing that really fries my brain. We also, our vision in the periphery is black and white because we don't have any color receptors out in the periphery. Yet, I don't see this. I see color everywhere. And of course, the reason why we see this is because we're constantly moving our eyes. So we move our eyes about three times per second, and we take different snapshots of the world, and we start to put this picture then together. So what you are experiencing really as the now is your brain building up some form of representation that is built on lots of these different snapshots. But it's just an illusion. Let me throw you with another really interesting fact. This is another one that I, even Joe has been telling his kids at school about this, which again makes me very happy as a, as, 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 as a cognitive psychologist. What if I told you that you're blind for about a quarter of the day? Would you believe me? Yeah, it's true. And let me prove you this. Now, during each of the eye movements that we make, our visual system shuts down, and this makes a lot of sense, because, of course, if you want to take a picture with a moving camera, what happens? You get a blurry image. That's of no use. And so rather than relying on blurry images, our visual system simply shuts down. It's a process known as saccadic suppression. Now, what this means is that our eyes, our visual system, shuts down for about a tenth of a second or 100 milliseconds during each of these eye movements. And if you don't believe me, I'll give you a bet. Try and see your own eyes move. Um, go home, stand in front of the mirror, look from one side to the next. If you can spot your own eyes move, I'll give you a thousand quid. Okay? You simply can't because our visual system shuts down. We can see other people's eyes move, but you'll never be able to see your own eyes move. Now, you might think a tenth of a second is not really that long, but let's do the maths. We move our eyes about three times per second, which means we do make about 150,000 eye movements per day. If you multiply that, it means we're blind for about four hours per day, which basically means your visual system is offline for a quarter of your wakeful day. Isn't that amazing? And yet, of course, we don't notice it. So... So far, I've shown you lots of physiological reasons and physiological blind spots, but there's lots of psychological ones as well. Because even when you're actually looking at something, doesn't necessarily mean that you see it. Um, what I have here is uh, change blindness. How many of you played Spot the Difference? Have you ever played Spot the Difference? 
Um, what we're going to do now is this is really exactly the same as spot to difference, but rather than showing the pictures next to each other, I'm going to show them in alternation. And what I'd like you to do, and so, so I'm going to show you two pictures of the cover of my book. When they change, when you spot the change, hold up your hand. Don't shout out the change, okay? That ruins it for everybody else. Hold up your hand when you spot the change. Some of you getting it, I've got a few, and then suddenly, some people still haven't got it yet. Look, I'm gonna put you out of misery, check out the hands here, okay? Now, this is not a difficult task, because all you have to do is just for a very short amount of time, you have to remember, your visual, your visual system has to remember that scene, and yet we really struggle to do this. But of course, once you spot it, it becomes completely obvious, doesn't it? Again, you might think, so this is known as change blindness, and you might think, well, this is a very artificial situation. This would never happen to me in the real world. Think again. This is a lovely study by, Levins and, uh, uh, by um, Simons and Levin. They carried this out on a campus in America, and you've got the experimenter here talking to the person, the experimenter's changed, and she completely <laughs> fails to notice that she's talking to someone else. Um, now, you might think, well, this can only happen in America. Um, it doesn't. Um, one of my PhD students, he carried out studies at Spitalfield Market where they changed a person for a mannequin, and most people didn't notice that they were talking to a mannequin. Um, so again, intuitively, you think, well, surely we should be able to see these things, yet we clearly don't. I'm assuming you've all seen this. Yeah. yeah see, um, has anybody not seen this? Oh, wow, wow. Okay, so just for the benefit, this means everybody who has seen it can laugh at the ones who haven't seen it. Um, so, um, okay, this is quite nice, people haven't seen it. Um, what I'm going to show you is a video, short video clip of two teams of basketball players, and they're going to pass a basketball from one player to the next. What I'd like you to do is keep a mental count of the number of passes. Um, and to keep two, se two, two separate counts, one for the number of direct passes and one for the number of bounce passes, okay? I know it's hard. Don't give up. And don't make any noise. Are you ready? Yeah? Let's go. Okay, you can stop counting now. Uh, of those of you, if you hadn't seen it before, how many did not notice a gorilla walking across? <laughs> oh, beautiful, beautiful. Let me show you. I'm going to show you the same. Uh, let's just watch the same clip again. This time you don't count. Now, what's interesting about this clip, and this is a study by... Um, by, by, by um, by Dan Simons, is that about naive participants, about half participants don't notice the gorilla walking right across, even though, of course, this is happening right in front of your eyes. And so, the reason... What's the name of this again? This is called the gorilla illusion. <laughs> Simons and Chabris, 1999. Um, if you type in the gorilla, it's one of the most, it's one of the, as an attention researcher, this is what makes attention more interesting um, for us to teach. Um, but um, yeah, if you type in Google gorilla illusion, it's been viewed millions of times. It's a classic in, psycho it's a classic in psychology now. And of course, the, the reason why it's so fantastic is because it's so surprising. As I said before, magic relies on exploiting not just limitations, but rather surprising limitations. You think you should be able to see the gorilla, yet we clearly don't. 
So why don't we see these things? Well, the reason for this is, of course, all to do with attention, because rather than processing all of the information that's out here, our attentional system prioritizes the stuff that is of importance, which only appends to the things that are of importance, and anything else we just fail to process, because we don't actually need it. Now, of course, this is great for magicians, because what this means is that we can misdirect your attention and create absolute wonders. Now, a lot of these phenomena really took the scientific community by surprise. I mean, the Gorilla Illusion was published in 1999, change blindness, as I've shown you before, that was, kind of, that, that, that was discovered sort of in the mid-1990s. And indeed, when official scientists were presenting these findings at visual, visual science conferences, most of the audience were just as surprised that they didn't notice the things as you guys are, because it's so surprising. But I think magicians have been aware of a lot of these limitations for many, many years, if not centuries. And this is one of my favorite paintings by, um, by Bosch, um, which depicts, this is the 15th century painting of a street performer performing the cups and balls. As you can see, it's exactly the same routine that I was performing here before. The thing that I wasn't lying about, it is really one of the <coughs> oldest tricks in magic. Now, this magic only works by misdirecting your attention. There's no other way in which you can actually perform these types of illusions, which implies that magicians may have have had some understanding of some of these limitations. And I mean, look at the, I mean, look at his expression here. I mean, imagine his look on his face once the lemons start appearing underneath these cups. Um, but not only that, of course, here the misdirection is also used to pickpocket the guy as well. Can you spot here? So, while scientists have only really sort of come to grips with a lot of these counterintuitive limitations, a lot of these principles have been exploited by magicians and pickpockets. And so, in a lot of our research, I've tried to study these principles scientifically. And what I'd like to do now is give you just a little example, a little insight into how we do this. Um, so, what I'm going to show you now is this is this is not a magic trick, okay? Can you all see the tips? Can you all see the table here? If you're the back, if you're right at the back, maybe stand up. Um, so, um, can you all can you all see? Um, it's it's very quick. It's not going to be it's not going to be very long. Um, yeah, can you see the table? You ready? Okay. Gone. How many of you did not see how the light has disappeared? Yeah, don't shout out the screen. <laughs> <laughs> um, how many did not see how it disappeared? Okay, do you want to see it again? Yeah, yeah um, I'm going to need another lighter. Uh, another one right here. <laughs> I'm going to do exactly the same thing. You'll see how it's done? Yeah. I just dropped it. Just a small record. This is why the magic circle wants to expel me because I'm explaining this. <laughs> it's not a joke. Uh, the, so this is not a magic trick because I'm just using misdirection to prevent you from seeing something like in the gorilla illusion. But rather than getting you to count the number of times that the ball is being passed, I'm using lots of different attentional cues to misdirect your attention. So I'm uh, creating a bright light, which hopefully captures your attention. I'm using social cues, so I'm kind of like grabbing this flame, 
I'm using social cues, so where I'm looking uh, is very important. And then this is the point at which I'm going to drop it, um, so I'm throwing everything at it. I'm using my gaze, you can hear the sound. These are all cues which will automatically come to your attention. There's movement, everything puts together to hopefully prevent you from actually seeing it drop. And again, as I'm kind of like saying, this is very surprising because intuitively you think, well, surely you should be able to see this, yet you simply don't. Now, to study this, um, we also measure people's eye movements. And what I'd like to do now is this is, when a magician says they're not really sure whether it's going to work or not, they're always lying. <laughs> I'm going to, did you want to see how we study this in the lab? Um, so what I've brought along here, you may have wondered what this is. Um, this is an eye tracker, and I'm just going to change my computer around slightly. Um, so let me just, would somebody mind helping me out with this? Yeah, would you mind having that? Right. What's your name? Jim. Jim. Yep. You give Jim a big hand of applause. Um, so, uh, what I have here, so this is the way that the eye tracker works. Um, it's a pair of glasses, which has got two cameras, two tiny cameras. We've got one camera here. And if you look at the screen, it's a bit hard to... It's so dark in here. It's very dark in here. But we can see Jim. Can you say hello to everybody? Hello? Um, oh, no, yeah, no, we need a lot of lights, sort of as much light as possible. Um, yeah, that's a bit better, like that. So you can see. So would you mind putting this on? Where does it fit? Like a pair of glasses. If you could stand over here as well, in front of the computer. Um, if we just put this on your eye bridge like that. Okay. Um, if you just come, yeah, that's better with the light. So you can see. So what we see here now is that is Jim's view. Uh, this here is Jim's eye. Now I'm just going to have to fiddle around with this a little bit to get that eye. So now normally I would spend a lot more time calibrating this. I'm going to try whether this works. It might work. Now, Jim, can you come here? So, what we can see here on the screen is this is, we can maybe kind of like kill one of the lights kind of like from the front. Could we maybe switch off some of the lights in the front? Yeah, that's fine. That's just so that. So, what we can see here is now Jim's eye. Um, and what the eye tracker is doing is working out the center of that eye. And by doing so, we can actually work out the eye rotation. Now, um, once we've worked out the eye rotation, we can calibrate to physical spaces. So what I'm going to do now is a calibration. Jim, can you just stand right in front of the computer? And you're going to see some dots. Starting calibration. Just look at the dots. And what's happening now is as Jim is looking at these dots, which are physically defined in space, we can actually calibrate. Stopping calibration. Jim's eye position two physical dots in space, and now, um, if we look at the red dot, you can look at me. Yeah, to look, at, look at my hand here. I mean, we do, this is a very rough and ready calibration, but you get the, can you see the dot? So we can now measure your eye movements, and I can do some magic. We can work out how this direction works. Right. Thank you very much. Oh, that was great. Um, oh, thank you.
Now, if you're wondering what this looks like, so if we could maybe uh, turn off the lights again. Um, so, so we do this to study misdirection because it provides us with a great online measure of what people are actually attending to. And this is one of the earlier study uh, where you see a similar misdirection trick uh, of me, a lot younger. Um, and uh, this dot here is where the person is looking. This trick is very similar to the lighter trick that I showed you before. And as you can see, this person is being beautifully misdirected like that to prevent him from seeing the, the cigarette drop. Did you all see how the cigarette dropped? Did anybody not? I told you how it was done, okay? Do you want to see it again? <laughs> you want to see it again? Um, let me show you this again. Um, so watch very carefully. And you can see that um, I'm just dropping it like with a lighter, <laughs> and yet most people don't see it. Now, one of the things that's been really interesting about a lot of this research with eye movements is that intuitively gave me think that if you're looking at something, you should be able to see it. And yet, what these studies show over and over again is that it doesn't really matter where you're looking. Sometimes we get people who are actually looking at the cigarette and they still don't see it. And the reason for this is because our, it's known as covert attention, so attention that happens independently of where you are looking, is being misdirected. And of course, we don't just do this research for fun. This has got serious implications. So think about driving. Now, driving is this weird task where you're having to do these, lots of these really difficult things at the same time, and not paying attention to the traffic could have fatal consequences. And so in the UK, we're not allowed to talk to someone on a mobile phone whilst driving, which is a really good idea because, of course, talking to someone on a mobile phone will distract your attention and that will impair your, your, your driving performance. Indeed, if you're talking to someone on a mobile phone whilst driving, that impairs your performance just as much as it is when you're legally drunk. It's just you don't notice it. But, of course, we're allowed to talk to someone with a, with a hands-free set. And that law was introduced because of a false understanding, really, of how attention works. Because it was assumed that if you're driving and you're fiddling around with your phone, you're taking your eyes off the road. But of course, what this research is telling us is that even if you're looking at something, if your mind is being distracted or misdirected, you still won't see it. And this is why talking to someone with a hands-free set is just as dangerous as it is with a handheld set. And it's counterintuitive. Like with all of these principles that are being exploited by magic, we don't assume it, which is why it works in magic, but which is why it's actually very important for us to become aware of them. So for the last bit, I'd just like to look at the extent to which you can actually trust the things that you see. Intuitively, we think that, well, I won't believe it until I actually see it. That's the wrong assumption, because in actual fact, all seeing is really believing. And this is because vision is all about problem solving. I've already mentioned this idea that vision is all about an illusion, and it really is your brain simply making stuff up. Have a look at this picture here. What do you see? Duck, rabbit, duck, rabbit. Um, it's one of these bistable images that you will either perceive this as a duck, you'll get the duck here with the beak and the eye, or, of course, with the rabbit where the beak turns into the ears. Now, what's really interesting about this image is that although the image is not changing, your perceptual experience of the world is changing. Nothing is changing, it's just your experience of this. And what this illustrates is that perception is not just about seeing or not just about your eyes capturing information. It's all about how the brain actually interprets this information. And this can lead to errors. 
Have a look at these two tables. Which of these two tables looks longer? The one on the left or the one on the right? The one on the left. They're exactly the same. Um, and I can demonstrate this by removing some of the features. I'm not changing the image. I'm just removing the features and I'm rotating it. And you can see that they're exactly the same. Um, I can put this back and you experience them as being different. <coughs> so even something like shape, a simple property that you, that you take for granted, um, is simply kind of like the way that we perceive these shapes is based on how your brain is interpreting it. How many of you remember this? Yeah? It's in a visual illusion that almost broke the internet, and it really took people by surprise, because, of course, everybody assumes that color is such a basic perceptual phenomenon that we should all be perceiving the same color. But, of course, even color is just simply your brain making stuff up. It's your brain giving some kind of interpretation of what you've just seen. Um, let me illustrate this using one of my favorite illusions by Bo Lotto. Um, What's the color of this square down here? Orange. What about the one up here? Brown. They look different, don't they? They're exactly the same. Um, and again, I can illustrate this by removing the context. So I'm removing the context gradually, and they're exactly the same. Um, they're physically identical, yet you are perceiving them as being very different. Um, I can add the context again, and even if you know it, um, it still works. You can't find these types of illusion. It still works. Um, let me show you my favorite one. This is known as the hollow mask illusion. And what you're about to see is a mask rotating. And even though you know that this mask is hollow, you can't fail to perceive it as being solid. Um, wait for it coming around. Now, here it comes. And it even turns in the opposite direction as well. Um, Try and fight it, try and fight it. Um, so I'll wait for it to come around. One more time. So it'll come around now. And of course the reason why this illusion works is because our brains are hardwired to look at faces and we're very good at looking at faces. But I mean, how many times have you seen a face with a nose, nose pointing inwards? <laughs> Has anybody seen one before? No, we haven't. Usually when we see a face, it's a nose pointing outwards. Now, our brain uses lots of heuristics and shortcuts to make assumptions about the world. And of course, when you're actually seeing a face, well, it makes sense to just assume that the nose is pointing outwards, regardless of what information is actually out there. And that is why you actually experience that, that face as being solid. And it works just as well in the real, in the real life as it does on video. Now, are you ready for the most amazing illusion of all? Yeah? This is the one that keeps me awake at night, OK? Um, can, you see, can you see the ball here, I think? Um, now again, <laughs> the explanation is a lot cooler, okay? The way it's done is I throw the ball up in the air once, twice, and on the final throw I just pretend to throw it when it's actually held inside my hand. Um, did anybody see it disappear up here? Yeah? Yeah? Um, about a third, if you do it on video, about two-thirds of people experience the ball as moving up um, and disappearing somewhere up here. 
This is an illusion that was first studied by a guy called Norman Triplett in 1900, and he performed this illusion for kids, and what he found was that actually most of the kids, they experienced the walls moving up, even though it wasn't actually thrown. Like on the final throw, I just pretended, yet a lot of people are actually experiencing this ball as moving up. So why does this illusion occur? This is where it gets really, truly amazing. And to understand the illusion, again, we have to look at how the brain processes information. This is a representation of the brain, and we've got in the visual system, we've got the eyes here, which we've already looked at, which capture visual information. Once they've captured the visual information, they send it through different neural centers to the visual cortex, which is located back here. Now, neural processing takes time, okay? It takes approximately, I mean, this is a very conservative estimate, approximately a tenth of a second or 100 milliseconds for information to travel, for the neurons to transmit the information from the retina through the kind of like the different centers to the visual cortex, which of course is the area of the part of the brain that sees. Does that make sense? Are you still with me? Okay, a tenth of a second. So, who wants to feel good about themselves? I kind of like, I made fun of you, kind of like, do you want to, like, let's do something amazing. That was amazing. That was utterly amazing. Now, I'm really not taking the piss. That was truly amazing. And I'll explain to you why, you can just write it back to me. I'll explain to you why this was so amazing. Because, of course, since it takes time for information to travel to the visual cortex, what this means is that by the time something, that by the time you've experienced something, it's already happened. There's a time delay. It's a bit like with a thunderstorm. We've got lightning and thunder happening at the same time, and yet, of course, we're seeing the lightning before we hear the thunder. They're happening at the same time. And it's the same with our visual experience. By the time your brain has processed the information, it's already in the past, which means that something as simple as catching a ball should simply be impossible. You should not be able to do this because by the time you've seen it, the ball is too late. It's far too late. Now, can you think that a tenth of a second delay is not that long? In neural processing, this is ages. If I'm walking here, about, that's about a speed of about one meter per second, the neural delay implies that the world should be lagging about 10 centimeters behind me. It doesn't. I came here on the tube and it was really busy. I didn't bump into people. I was able to navigate my way through this dynamic environment. And so how is this possible then? Well, the reason why it's possible is that you actually see in the future. Because what your brain is doing is using information from the past and predicting what the future is going to be like. So what you're seeing as the now is not the now, but it's what your brain is predicting the future to be. Does that make sense? Isn't that truly amazing? And this is a big delay. I mean, a tenth of a second, that's, that's conservative. That is really very, very conservative. So your brain is constantly predicting the future, and that's what you're experiencing as the now. 
And so the vanishing ball illusion works, of course, because our visual system is behaving in the same way that the dog is behaving when you're pretending to throw a stick. The dog runs, you see things. Um, and of course you see things because your brain is hardwired to try and predict the future. So I've so far just covered a lot of these illusions that relate to perceptual processing, but exactly the same or similar kind of phenomena occur when we look at memory and even kind of like free will as well, but I won't really have any time to go into this right now. Now, I can see how this is not really a feel-good talk, because all I'm really telling you is that, well, you're being fooled by a lot of these illusions. But that's really the wrong way to think about the human brain. We should celebrate these illusions, because these illusions illustrate just how clever the human brain is. Because if you think about the human brain from an from a engineering perspective, like if you think about a mobile phone, this is a rough evolution of the mobile phone. And of course, engineers have managed to pa package more and more processing capacity into smaller and smaller devices. Now, with the brain, this is not really possible because we've reached the limits. There's only so many neurons that we can actually fit into our head. And so there's a simple conundrum here, then. Either we can choose to just simply process all of the information that is out there, or, but that would mean we'd have to have brains the size of this. This is Harry Hill taking the piss out of me, making this point. Or we could just come up with lots of clever shortcuts that allow us to predict the future and only, only, uh, only, um, only process the information that is actually of relevance. And I personally know which solution that I would choose, and I'm very glad that evolution has kind of like taken that path. Thank you very much for your attention. Um, um, anyone... Um, a lot of this is really in this book, which has lots of other surprising kind of like um, things. So if you're interested in a lot of these things, um, check. Ooh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, check out the book. Get them while they're hot. Get them while they're hot. Back there, also, also they've brought them all by bike. Buy them, otherwise he has to kind of like carry them all back to South London. Um, thank you very much for your time.